have what she's having. Well, hello. This is the Our Better Half podcast, a chat about sex and sexuality in the second half of life. This is episode 18, and it's May 15th, 2016. We're going to hear a conversation today with Dr. Jane Fleischman about research into the sexual satisfaction of older folks in same-sex relationships. We're also going to learn about the upside of sexually transmitted disease from our sexy science correspondent, and we're going to stave off the complete freakout that is having our youngest child graduate from high school. So, I'm getting fired next week. It's the longest job I've ever had, the most important work I've ever done, the hardest and most meaningful thing I will ever do. And it's having a rap party this week. Our second child will walk across the stage, get his diploma, marking the end of his childhood and the beginning of his adult life. Also, the end of nearly three decades of being a mom to children. Now I will be a mother of adults only. I am notorious for being a big crybaby, so stocking up on the waterproof mascara, because this is a biggie. It's not about me, this being downsized, made redundant, fired, sent out on an ice flow. But still, despite it being a celebration, it's also an ending. The kids are launched, more or less, fully formed, and we as parents not only take our bow, but we leave the stage. Now, okay, in real life, parents of young adults are still very much involved, and the role of family is a permanent condition, but this kid that used to look up at me quite literally looks down to see me and is rightfully in charge of his destiny. I've been an adult child to my parents for decades now, but still lean on them for support and wisdom. I hope my kids will too. I expect to be my parents and my in-laws go to as they get on, and I hope my kids will be there for me as well. This week, we party. Next week, the possibilities are endless. to introduce you to Dr. Jane, Dr. Jane Fleischman. She's a sex educator, an activist, an author, a teacher, an organizer, and a speaker. My mom, who is a radio personality herself, by the way, handed me Jane's sexuality and aging column called Let's Talk, which is in the Live Well magazine. And I wrote her a fan letter. In the inaugural issue of the column, Jane says, there is an emerging freedom among some older adults that means that it doesn't matter whether you're single or partnered or lost a spouse, used to a mixed-sex relationship or same-sex relationship, living in a cis or transgender individual, living in your own home or living in an aging community, living with chronic illness or with daily aches and pains. Each of us is still a sexual being. I learned that Jane had recently completed her doctoral research on older adults in same-sex relationships. So I called to learn more. 
Welcome, Jane. How are you today? Oh, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on your show today, Laura. I'm really excited. I'm very glad to have you. When you were little, what did you want to do when you grew up? That's a really good question. First of all, I grew up on the ocean. And so the thing I really wanted to be when I grew up was a lifeguard. I wanted to have the tan and the body and the bathing suit and the <laughs> muscles. And I just, I loved and sit up high. I thought that was really cool. And I just thought, what a great job that is. But of course, you know, when you're a little kid and you want to be a lifeguard, they want to get rid of you as quickly as possible. And so they would send me to the next beach over and ask me to go look for a sky hook or a jetty scraper, none of which actually existed. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great way to get rid of little kids. And I didn't realize that until much, much later. But it was, um, that was my dream. Mm. And then, of course, when I got into high school, I had to actually look for, uh, you know, other kinds of things because that wasn't going to sustain me in the wintertime. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I grew up in the 60s and the early 70s. Um, I remember my mom took me into New York City and we went to the Hadassah Career Center. I don't know if that really exists anymore, but um, looking back on it now, it was uh, serious uh, gender socialization rules. And uh, when I was there, I just thought it was crazy because they gave me a battery of tests. And I remember one of the questions was, would you rather be a mortician or a wife? And I thought, that's not much of a choice, but that's what I recall from the whole thing. And I think they said I should be a lawyer. I went to college thinking I would study law and do political law like, uh, you know, the Chicago 7 trial had just been happening. And I wanted to mm -hmm. be something like William Kunstler. I didn't know that there was something like political organizing in those days, but uh, I wanted to do something that would change the world. And having grown up 60s amid so many social movements, I was really awash with all those kinds of ideas. And... Um, never went into the law. I think that was a good thing. Uh, but I have spent my whole career of the last 40 years doing various kinds of social justice work uh, connected to many different movements. Yeah, it sounds like you've, you've had a, quite a career. Yeah, many careers, actually. <laughs> and so what are you doing now? About six years ago, I retired from a, a long-standing career in public sector work. And I I uh, knew when I retired, I wasn't really ready to be done. I wanted to be generative, as Eric Erickson would say, in mm -hmm. my later years. And I was really uh, conscious that I wanted to do something that would be really meaningful and would make another change in the world. And so I went back and got my master's and my doctorate from Widener University in human sexuality. And now I call myself a sexuality educator. I do research and I do um, work on organizational change around uh, human rights issues that are present around sexuality. That's really very, very exciting. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I've got about probably 10 more years left of work in me and I can't wait. You know, these people will say, oh, I can't wait to just retire. I can't wait to get going on this next career. I'm so thrilled that I have this newfound knowledge and a lot of new skills and I think my affect is right. You know, sexuality educators are probably the most extroverted people you'll ever meet. So I think that I, I met the right profession this time. <laughs> so how old are you now? I just turned 62. How's that treating you? It's great. You get more discounts. I like it. 
I feel venerable. My children are um, of the age where they actually remember my birthday. Um, my partner and I have uh, just decided that celebrations are very important to us. So we, we just celebrated and had a wonderful um, opportunity for Dr. Jane to show up. And uh, uh, we had a dinner party with a, a bunch of friends. And they asked me sex questions. And it was so much fun, Laura, because Dr. Jane is here and uh, she's she's available. She's got time. Uh, she's got a few hours free today if you're interested. And uh, <laughs> I love this venerable. We need to use the word venerable more. I love that. So it turns out um, that uh, we, we know people in common. You live where I grew up in Western uh-huh. Massachusetts. Right. And I'm remembering that in my town of Amherst, a five college town, I got to see a real change over time. I got to see same sex orientation go from whispered about to pride. I mean, outright pride. It's kind of a special area in this regard. Can you talk about that? Yes. I I love that you were um, remembering some of my own history as well, Laura. Uh, When we first started the very first gay pride march in Northampton, it was more of a gay pride stand, uh, and there were people very fearful about coming out, and it was a very um, scary time. Uh, it was the early 80s. It was Reagan era. Uh, we thought Reagan was about the worst president we could have, and we had no idea what might be coming down the pike later on. Um, but we, uh, we also, in Northampton, where I live now, lost a, a local ballot on um, domestic partnership in the early, in the mid-90s. This is before same-sex marriage was called same-sex marriage. And it was was before we even were able to talk about what it would be like to have full liberation, right? Mm -hmm. So... So domestic partnership, people thought, oh, this is a very gay, lesbian, friendly town, Um, no problem, and the vote lost. And I took that as a cautionary tale, and I remembered that um, for future uh, political actions I was taking at the local level, that you never can take anything for granted, and that now this is a, a, a you know in the valley we we joke about how, for instance, my children grew up in a public school where having two moms was actually seen as an asset because mm-hmm. then you had you had two people to go to the PTO meetings and. Uh, <laughs> And so I think it's really changed, and yet uh, we still have tremendous work to do. There's still a tremendous amount of work in terms of uh, the kinds of issues that are really intersecting around mm-hmm. sexual orientation. For instance, poverty. Uh, for instance, race. Uh, for instance, uh, national origin. We have tremendous problem with immigration uh, in this country for LGBT people. The research that you did for your dissertation, I believe, is on older adults in same-sex relationships. It strikes me that in the last few decades, you know, the nature of same-sex relationships probably hasn't changed so much, but the public nature of those relationships is really fast. Seems to be very different. How? What's your, what are you seeing in your research about how that's affecting the relationships themselves? The research I did was um, entitled Coming of Age at the Time of Stonewall. And I looked at sexual satisfaction in older adults in same-sex relationships. And I used Stonewall, which was, um, as you know, and many of your listeners probably know, that it refers to the Stonewall Rebellion, 
which began on June 28, 1969, and has been seen as a watershed moment for the modern gay liberation movement. And those who came of age at the time of Stonewall are now in their 60s and 70s. Though the body of research on same-sex relationships continues to amplify our knowledge of these marginalized communities, research on their sexual satisfaction really remains really scant. And there's even less research on older adults in same-sex relationships. There's a lot of myths. There's a lot of confusion. And this population really needs to be seen um, through an investigation that, that, that uh, begins to shed light on their lived experiences. And there really was a dearth of information about their sexual lives. We knew that people were having sex. We just didn't know what was going on. And when I began the research, I had a number of hunches, which mostly turned out to be untrue, which I loved. Like what? Well, for instance, I thought as a researcher, I was going to find a lot of men in their 60s and 70s in um, either open relationships or in what we now term monogamish relationships somewhat closed uh, but somewhat open. Mm -hmm. What I found in my research was that at more than two-thirds of the population that I studied, um, and I did a quantitative analysis, I had responses from all over the country and Canada, um, more than two-thirds of the respondents were in 20-year or plus relationships, and the men were in longer relationships than the women. So that was one, that was one hunch that I thought was very interesting. Uh, the other hunch that I um, thought I ha- had to kind of break down a myth about what we had heard in the 80s was a term um, that I really uh, hesitate to even say because I, I'm trying to uh, root it out of our, our language, but uh, lesbian bed death. Mm. And, and I thought most of my research on the women's side was going to be about, you know, really challenging this myth and showing that it's not true. Well, it turns out, once I started doing my um, uh, library research, that many other people, at least a dozen other people, had studied this issue and had found it to be um, absolutely inaccurate. Some listeners may not know what that term means. So the term really referred to a study that was done in the 60s um, where it showed that um, there were there was an incremental difference between men and women in what I call mixed-sex relationships and same-sex relationships in terms of their frequency of sex and that lesbians had the lowest frequency. Not much lower, but lower. Boom, that became uh, sort of uh, people just grabbed hold of that one number and uh, used it to um, basically, in some ways, vilify lesbian sexual relationships. So I thought I'd have to take all this time to go ahead and debunk that myth. And it turned out that I really didn't have to. And that was a humbling experience. Another hunch I had was that um, there was going to be a much higher rate of internalized homophobia or the, the, the hatred that many people in the public often feel or the ignorance or the fear that people in the public feel toward um, uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered, queer people turned inward by those same people. Mm-hmm. That internalization I thought was going to be very high. Guess what? It turns out it was actually quite low. 
Um, Interesting. Their resilience was quite high. I, I, so there were a number of hunches that I had that I was so excited that I was wrong. It was great, <laughs> great to see that the data um, would actually, uh, you know, give me some uh, really good information to um, give to educators, clinicians, and policymakers. You said that there hasn't been enough research. There isn't much data. So you're you're a pioneer here. What were the things that you were looking for? Um, I was looking for correlations and I was looking for predictors. I found four correlations and one predictor, which just so you know, um, in doctoral research, you don't necessarily have to come up with any results. You just have to uh, really um, begin to examine an issue that hasn't been examined before and um, you know, uh, uh, clarify for people that you understand how to conduct a research um, project. So one of the uh, most interesting correlations that I discovered was that sexual satisfaction was correlated with relationship satisfaction. I found that relationship satisfaction was correlated with resilience. And I found that there was an inverse correlation between resilience and internalized homophobia and that there was an inverse correlation between relationship satisfaction and internalized homophobia. What that says to us is that there may be more uh, research that has to be done on each of these variables and maybe others. But the most exciting result that I got was that relationship satisfaction was the one variable that I tested that showed up as a predictor for sexual satisfaction. So what does that mean? It means that one of my hunches was that the men in the sample would be only interested in sex and the women in the sample would only be interested in relationship. Turned out that there were very little differences by gender and that relationship was important to all of them as a predictor of their ability to have a uh, robust sexual satisfaction. Um, I didn't look at frequency and duration. I looked at self-report using a uh, a scale, a, a survey that had been uh, validated um, and was useful for this population. What was the age range? I looked um, only at people between the ages of 60 and 75. Why? Two reasons. One of the faculty members on my committee suggested that I uh, pare it down to a small age range so that I could really have um, more to say to clinicians and educators uh, about this population. I had originally thought... I'd look at people from age 45 and up. And he said, you know, 45-year-olds are much different than 80-year-olds. And if you look at a population that's a little bit smaller, uh, 60 to 75-year-olds, they might have more symmetry and similarity. Yeah, and growing up and, and coming of age in a very different era. Right, right, exactly. And these are people who spanned both the baby boom and the silent generation, right? So... It's interesting to see uh, that there's so much similarities. Most of my um, population was in their early to mid-60s. Uh, so that may have skewed it as well. I think, you know, part of it is I'm not sure how comfortable people are answering a sex research survey online. If you're older, there might be some fear about um, how uh, secure the information would be or how confidential it would be. So that might have skewed it to a lower age group. I, you know, it's hard to know these kinds of things. That's really interesting. So if someone is um, over 50 or in, in your, the sample that you're looking at, they grew up not knowing that they would be able to be out and open in their relationships later. I think it's fair to say they never thought that would happen. Right. I'm going to ask you to make a guess about 
how that population is going to contrast with the generation coming up now. Oh, interesting. Well, the generation coming up now is just blowing all this out of the water, right? I mean, from, uh, you know, throwing out the gender binary to um, really throwing out the sex binary, right? I mean, it's so, mm-hmm. it's just so amazing to me what um, uh, I'm learning from uh, the young people that I teach. And one of the reasons that I like to teach is because I learn so much more. So I think... Um, who knows? I, I, you know, I had to put some caveats in my dissertation to let this um, dissertation not fall on deaf ears uh, in 20 years from now. I wanted people to get that prior to Stonewall, there was silence. There was no coming out. It wasn't available. You, you didn't say to your employer, hey, can I get some benefits from my lover? This just wasn't a thing. So I, I, so I did a whole historical analysis at the beginning of my dissertation just to let people know where we were coming from and where this group um, that uh, I was studying uh, was coming from. And I think it'll be helpful. But I also think that some of the terminologies, some of the um, – distinctions are going to be completely different in 20 years. So um, we have a saying in our family, uh, I didn't expect that to happen. I wonder what's going to happen next. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. When you talk to younger people, mm. uh, do they know what Stonewall is? Some do. Depends how their parents brought them up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In Amherst, we did. Yeah. 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 <laughs> It was probably part of your, you know, high school social studies curriculum. You know, not every place was like Amherst. Uh, I'm 55, so no. But um, I think now it is. Actually, you know what, Laura? In uh, the state of California, LGBT history is now part of the mandatory uh, um, statewide curriculum. But that's the only state in the country where that exists. That's interesting, right? I don't know if this is something you looked into, but in your research or in your thinking about these issues, parenting as openly same-sex families, I would think that aging, handling transitions like college, empty nest, retirement, caregiving, end of life, there are a lot of things that are going to be different now. I think it's true. I also think that for some of the issues that you named, like end-of-life decisions, parenting, uh, caregiver, uh, you know, becoming caregivers. I don't know that orientation is going to be the biggest difference, right? I think that perhaps um, uh, social economic status or your income or mm. or the ways in which you have access to uh, funds that other people uh, perhaps gave to you, uh, that's, that's going to be much different, um, much more different between uh, mixed-sex um, folks and uh, same-sex folks. And I think that for aging and sexuality, one of the more interesting issues I think that is very different for same-sex uh, or LGBTQ folks is that what happens when your body starts to fail and you cannot any longer be that sexual identity that you used to be. So I think about uh, people um, in the BDSM community mm-hmm. who were really, you know, they their role was to serve and they can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Or I think about uh, people in the butch femme community. So mm-hmm. uh, you're not really able to wear the clothing that really defined who you were. And so what happens to your butchness or your feminist, right? I think that there's issues 
that we haven't yet um, really analyzed enough. But our expectations of aging, because of the baby boomers and because of the sexual revolution and the gay revolution and, and really because of the, um, the openness of our society right now around sexuality, our expectations of aging are really going to change. And it's going to take a lot to change some of these long-term care environments where maybe somebody was out for 40 years in their neighborhood and now they're moved into an assisted living place and they're back in the closet. And, right. and their neighbors are people who don't understand them and maybe have some uh, deep-rooted religious or um, misinformation or, or, or other homophobia that they've got to deal with. So it's, I, I think we haven't really investigated these issues enough, and we really need to. And that's part of the mission that I'm on right now. Do you think that it will be legal and policy changes that will make the big difference? Or is it social acceptance and changes in uh, homophobia and, and levels of prejudice? I think that they go hand in hand, right? I think that there's cultural and social that inform the political. And I think that there's the political that inform the other. But, but mostly it's – I've seen these kinds of changes based on – courageous people like Edie Windsor and the, you know who who owed the federal government over $360,000 when her lover Thea Spire died because they were not legally married mm-hmm. and and these are the taxes that Edie owed on Thea's estate um, she took that uh, she couldn't pay it she took it to court went through the appeals court went to, right up to the US Supreme Court and her case and her courageous fight was the real reason that we were able to overturn the Defense of Marriage Act and make it unconstitutional in this country, which led the way mm-hmm. for the Obergefell um, decision in uh, two years later in 2015. Yeah. Last, um, last thing I want to ask you about, you are involved in a, an event that's coming up in August. Yes. The Sexuality and Aging Consortium at Widener University um, is sponsoring a pre-conference seminar, a one-day seminar at the uh, Sexual Freedom Summit um, called the Sexuality and Aging Training Institute. It's August 4th, right outside of D.C., right off of the uh, metro. It's real easy to get to. Um, it's going to be a fantastic day. We already have our keynote uh, speakers and our workshops lined up. Um, uh, continuing ed credits will be available for social workers uh, and for sex educators, counselors, and therapists through ASECT. Uh, it's affordable. Um, it's a wonderfully warm um, and friendly atmosphere. You can really uh, have time to have conversations with people as well as going to wonderful workshops. Uh, I'll be doing a workshop actually with Dr. Ashley Mader on um, the sexuality of both uh, mixed sex relationships and same sex relationships as we age. There'll be workshops on um, embracing the beauty of the aging body. There'll be workshops on couples long-term in the African-American community. Uh, it's just going to be a wide variety of really interesting research, uh, policy, um, education, and clinical workshops. Uh, we hope to have a, another big crowd. This is our second year being sponsored by the Woodhull Sexual Freedom Alliance, and they're wonderful, and their summit is really jam-packed with uh, great people from all over the U.S., so I really encourage people to go. You can find us online. Google the Sexuality and Aging Training Institute. Um, they'll find it. It's four days of very exciting stuff. 
Thank you very much, Jane. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Really a pleasure to talk with you. Old people, your pelvic floor is at least as old as you are. It's been holding up your insides and supporting your genitalia all your life, and sometimes it needs a lift. And have you ever thanked it? Time for some victory lap Kegel exercises. Let's squeeze and relax and congratulate our pelvic floor on a job well done. If you are a regular old vanilla person like myself, you probably don't know about some of the resources out there to learn about sex. Now, there aren't any other podcasts that I know of that focus entirely on second halfers and sex, but if you want to try something more age-inclusive, I have these recommendations. One, check out Savage Lovecast, a sex advice show with Dan Savage. The language level is quite blue, the content is explicit, but the directness is refreshing and no-nonsense. Savage suffers no fools, but he treats everyone as a full-on adult, and he's over 50. Tristan Teermino has a long-running interview podcast, bridging the worlds of sex education with the spectrum of kink and BDSM and non-monogamy, as well as sex work and pornography. She's in her 30s and has guests of all ages. Not safe for work. So not safe. Not safe at all. Sex with Emily, also an SFW. It's a popular show, which is a combination of very frank sex education and the lifestyles of young, sexually active adults. Emily takes a participant observer stance, talking about her sex life with co-hosts and taking questions from the audience about sexual health and relationships. Talking Sex is also one of my favorites. It's a South African radio journalist, Reddy Tlabi, who does special segments just on sex, along with two alternating co-hosts. One is a doctor and one is a sex counselor. It's playful, but very respectful of callers and the topic. More clinical and health-oriented. You may even be able to listen to this one with your teen kids in the car, and maybe you should. Another personal favorite, and this surprised me no end, is Life on the Swing Set, which features four people talking about what is called ethical non-monogamy. Not safe for work, certainly, but these are warm, deeply introspective, and thoughtful people who make a topic that is invisible to many of us visible, and has a lot to teach us, I find, about communication and honesty and relationships. Greetings, Dr. Rosalind Baculum, our sexy science correspondent. How are you today? I am wonderful. How are you? Very well. What do you have for us today? I am going to talk to you about the clap trap. <laughs> okay. So interestingly, when 
anthropologists and other researchers of early human groups back when we were still hunter-gatherers before the, the start of agriculture about 10 to 15,000 years ago, humans were largely polygynous, which meant that males tended to mate with more than one female at the same time. For the men, this optimized the number of children they could create, and humans tended to live more in what scientists call harems in, in terms of referring to other apes and animal species, where it's one man defending a group of females. Hmm. And over time, however, humans became more and more monogamous. Humans, of course, aren't entirely monogamous now, um, but they tended to more and more pair up singly. Over time, however, they tended to pair up singly, one male and one female, and they might be together for a certain period of time, and then they might move on because a partner died or other relationship issues and what have you. What researchers really didn't know, of course, was why this happened or what caused this change. And there's a new study out now that ran a computer simulation that found it might have actually been caused by chlamydia and other STDs. So basically, the clap made us monogamous. And the computer model they created goes something like this. They basically put groups of humans in different sized populations and modeled how quickly sexually transmitted infections would spread throughout the group. And when humans were hunter-gatherers, they lived largely in, in pretty small societies. So if any sexually transmitted infections did start spreading around, they'd be pretty self-limited. They couldn't go very far. They couldn't infect that many people because people's social and sexual networks were pretty overall pretty small. But with agriculture, humans began living in larger settlements and having more and more people around them and more and more people to shag, basically. <laughs> and so sexual networks and choices of sexual partners got larger and larger and larger, which meant sexually transmitted infections could be spread larger and wider. And the dangers of sexually transmitted infections are, are of course, they can kill you, potentially, in the case of syphilis and things like that. They can cause severe birth defects and limit your ability to produce healthy offspring. And they can also make you sterile, which is, from an evolutionary standpoint, another completely dead end. So if people are monogamous, even serially monogamous, it dramatically limits the ability for these infections to spread throughout the population. And so researchers hypothesize that that might be one of the reasons that humans became increasingly monogamous as our settlement sizes increased, is simply it was a way to keep from giving everybody the clap. The clap trap. The clap trap, exactly. Oh, this is, this is really interesting. It would be interesting, though, to see if the people who spread the clap the most were called the clapper and did the little clap thing and turned off the lights, although I doubt that happened. But it would be a good relationship warning sign on, on uh, early human Tinder. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So you'll give us some links to this so that we can um, send listeners to learn more about the clap trap. That works. Thank you very much, Dr. Baculum. You are most welcome. 
our youth translator, Marina Maklos, will explain that to a grandma. I don't understand what negging is. I heard Lena Dunham say it, but I still don't get it. Can somebody explain it to me? Oh, Grandma, I don't think you're going to like this one. Necking is to insult someone in order to lower their self-confidence and ultimately get them in bed. So it's pretty awful, but there is a opposite term, which is pausing. So I think I'll take the pause over the neck. In case you missed it in sex news... Science Abstract of the Week. Quote, New insights into the molecular dialogue between male and female during sexual plant reproduction show that even plant sex does not work without clear communication. Non-plants, take note. We are collectively shocked, shocked, that there is homosexuality going on in dance. Yes, it has happened. Dancing with the Stars featured its first same-sex dances. Two men and two women danced duets of a traditional romantic pairing without opposite genitalia. Lightning struck no one, apparently, and the words hot and sexy were used to describe it. The freedom to restrict the sound of your tinkle to those sporting similar anatomy is, as you know, under threat leading to a very interesting set of court cases defining gender and getting people talking about people's genitals. Some people are really, really fascinated by other people's underbits. The best part, though, is that the new infographics that accompany these stories are wonderful. Stick figures are getting a makeover, and it's high time. They're rocking high-low hemlines, new colors, every possible combination of stick-figuredness. Right on, stick fellows. Canadian midlifers are having the best sex ever. But they're doing it with a little too much abandon. So although they report enjoying sex more than younger folks, they're not doing it as safely, according to a recent study. How much is your orgasm worth? Gwyneth Paltrow's is clearly not cheap. I see she is recommending a 24 karat gold vibrator worth 15,000 US dollars or an economy silver version for 7,900. And I assume she puts her money where her mouth is. view to backstage drama here at uh, Our Better Half, this episode almost did not happen. An audio problem on the tape led to two weeks of gray hair tearing on my part and technical genius on the part of a real sound engineer to repair it, not to mention several kind friends who helped me out by listening and advising and one who found that engineer for me. Thank you, Robin. And for only the price of a bag of magic beans, even. Anyway, I fessed up to Jane that all this stuff was going on, and she just said, let's do that part again, which, of course, I should have done in the first place. Note to self, ask for help. People are really, really nice. I want to thank the hero savior of the episode, sound engineer Eric Messick. He worked his professional magic on the week's interview for this poor amateur, and I can highly recommend his professionalism and fast work. Also, Thanks to my regular correspondents and occasional grandmas and children. I will be skipping a week of podcasting to enjoy family and friends on graduation week. 
in two weeks, we'll be talking about the intrigues of nursing home sex and throw in an examination of why men fake orgasm. Meanwhile, go to ourbetterhalf.net to get on the mailing list. Go to iTunes to give this podcast a rating and old people, orgasms, have them. They're not like a sneeze. They are lotto tickets that always win at least a little something to add into the next drawing. I leave you now, parents and graduates, with the backstory on the pomp and circumstance song that we all associate with graduation. It was written by a guy who was apparently a poor teacher, bad musician, a peevishly and thoroughly unlikable guy. He cheated on his wife, mistreated his only child, and creeped on his female students. He required his female musicians to wear navy blue undies, and he went so far as to use his walking cane to lift their skirts to check. So, graduates, as you walk across the stage in whatever undie color you choose to take up your scroll of achievement, listen to the music of Sir Edward Elgar and know that you too can be an accidental icon with a Wikipedia page. You too can be remembered for more than your worst moments. Hey, this is Dan Savage from the Savage Lovecast and Savage Love, and you're listening to a Swing Set podcast at Swing Set FM. <laughs> 